All right, Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. We're in this series entitled One Another's. Really, how do we allow the gospel of Jesus Christ? The reality that Jesus Christ loved us enough that he came and lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, rose again three days later, so that today, if you've not placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, in other words, I'm not placing my trust in the good that I think I can do, but in the perfection that Christ has accomplished for me, that if I've done that in my life, that I'm relying solely on him as my means for salvation in a relationship with a holy God, then what does it look like for me to live in my relationships with one another in such a way that demonstrates that Jesus Christ has changed me and is changing me through the Holy Spirit. And so we've been looking at these different passages of Scripture that speak to what it looks like to live in relationship with one another. Now, here's the reality. There's 59 one another statements in the New Testament. So obviously, you can do the math. We would be in this series for over a year to deal with every one of them, but we're obviously not doing that. What we're doing is we're picking out certain ones, though everyone is important, but picking out certain ones that can remind us of what we are called to be and to do in our relationships with one another. And so look at verse 1 of Galatians chapter 6, and look at what Paul tells the church at Galatia through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted, and bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something When he is nothing, he deceives himself. So can we just say this phrase together? I am nothing. Can you say that? Let's say it, ready? One, two, three. I am nothing. So you're like, man, I was really hoping not to be reminded of that today. But that's something that we need to constantly remind ourselves of, and we're gonna explain what that means and what that doesn't mean, but I just think, I know I need to be reminded of it this morning. Verse four, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Then verse five, for each will have to bear his own load. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's the title of the message. Comes straight from verse two, bear one another's burdens. And here's what I really want us to understand today as we unpack these five verses. It's this idea that you, that I, that we have a Christ-given responsibility to do what? To bear one another's burdens. And I say that straight from verse two. Can we look at it again? Because we all need to be reminded of this. It says, bear one another's burdens. So here's the significance of that word burden. What it literally means is a heavy weight or stone that is to be carried for a long distance. So what it's getting at is an idea that that this word burden is referring to something that you can't carry on your own. You need help. That's the weight of the word. Is it too, too late, too early to get that? That's the weight of the word. It literally means that, like, like, I have something that I can't carry on my own, therefore I need help. 
And what we're going to see from these verses today is that you and I have a Christ-given responsibility to bear one another's burdens because it says that when we do this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Remember last week we looked at verses 13 through 15 of Galatians chapter 5 where Paul says that in this phrase characterizes all of the law of Christ. And what was it? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Paul is continuing is this idea that if we are going to love one another, and do what Christ has done for us, because as I just described, he, bear, he bore the greatest burden that we have, which is our sin and the consequences of our sin, which is a spiritual separation from God for all of eternity, that Christ put that on himself. He bore our greatest burden. Therefore, as ones who have benefited from that, we ought also to fulfill and live out that same type of love to one another. And that manifests itself according to this passage of Scripture by bearing one another's burdens. I wrote this phrase down, and I encourage you to write it down. It's this. How much I care is revealed and how much I help to carry. So you want to know this morning how much you really care. Ask yourself, how much am I helping to carry someone else's burden? The thing that they can't carry on their own. Because the action of a community, of a church that has been changed by the love of Jesus Christ, the action of a spirit-filled community, a community that's living through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is summed up with this single phrase, burden-bearing. That if this church which a church is not an organization, it is a group of people who have been changed by the gospel that one of the main ways that this church is gonna demonstrate that the Lord is doing something in this place is that we are going to help one another bear their burdens. We're gonna help people carry what they can't carry on their own. And as I was studying this passage of scripture and all of this about carrying a load for someone that they can't carry on their own, you know what it made me think of? It made me think of the many, many times that our family has had to move. Like what I mean by move is like get one of these loading trucks, fill it up, and then ask other people if they would graciously be able to help us unpack it. Now, if you're like me, you, not, you would not say, I would not say, let me be more personal so that I would never want to assume anything upon you all, but one of the things that I am not excited to do and like just let me go after it is when someone says, hey, Johnny, can you help me unload my moving truck? I'm not like counting down the days and like, man, I can't wait to put that on my calendar. In fact, let me put four reminders in my calendar so I don't miss that amazing opportunity. I've never met anybody that just gets all jazzed to help someone unload their moving truck. And maybe it's because as a pastor's kid growing up, I had to do so much of it. Like it wasn't a matter, do you want to do this that my dad would ask me. He would say, we are doing this. And here's what I would oftentimes do. As soon as the truck door went open, you know this, what are you doing? You are assessing the damage. 
and you're saying to yourself, how long am I gonna have to be here to unload that truck? I mean, I've been through every uh, packing situation. I've helped people pack who haven't packed yet. I've helped people pack that are wanting to clean the thing that you want to move so you can go on with your day. I mean, I've, I've endured everything. And here's what I've come to realize, whether I've been helping people move or whether I've had to move myself. Listen, my kids have PTSD with moving. Like every time I go on a trip somewhere, Lucas is like, are we moving? <laughs> I've done a lot of moving. Here's what I've found. I want to describe it this way, the different types of people you encounter when you have to move. So this may be one of you. Here's the first people. They're the people that avoid you when you have to move. They're the people that you could get a hold of them on your phone anytime, anywhere, any moment of the day, but because they know you're moving, they're all of a sudden not picking up their phone. Or they're in the church lobby and you are just expecting, you kind of see them coming and you're just quickly like getting out of the way so you can avoid them because you don't want to help carry their load. Here's another group of people. People that direct where things should go when you're moving. You ever find those people? Like, oh man, let me help you. Just a little bit, a little bit further. Watch out for that wall. Watch out for that step. And you're like, bro, would you carry something, please? Right, they just want to direct. How about this? They're the people that only help with the light stuff. Like, we got a dresser here, we got a refrigerator here, we got an armoire here, we got a washer and dryer here, and you're picking up a box of pillows. It's getting convicting, isn't it? How about this? They're the people that stay inside. Like, you got the whole truck to unload, and they're putting together a bed frame, and you've taken out one box. Why? So they can be in the AC, but they are helping, right? Yeah. And we're very thankful for these people. They're the people... No, no, these people. I didn't say we're thankful for the people who stay inside. People that do the heavy lifting and stay to the end, right? Man, I'm thankful for those people. I've benefited from those people. I'd like to say I was those people more than I wasn't, but that's debatable. But nevertheless, we're thankful for those people, right? Why? Because they helped carry a load that you and your family would have spent hours and hours and hours and hours doing you see the analogy? It, it, it helps us understand what this word means, this word burdens. See, the main point of the passage is verse 2. Like verse 2 is the key and everything around it helps us on how we do this. So here's what I want to do. I want to give you three things that when we are bearing one another's burdens, when we're embracing that Christ-given responsibility that he's given us, we're going to be committed to three things. And here's the first one, and it's found at the beginning of verse one. Number one, we will seek the restoration of others gently. Keyword, gently. See, what I love is that this verse 1 is going to help answer questions that when we read verse 1 and we're like, okay, so someone has committed some sin and I'm supposed to restore them and what does that look like and how do I make sure I do it in the right way? You might have some questions when you read verse 1. So here's three questions that I think we need to answer. Number one, who is told to do this? Like who's supposed to restore someone who's caught in sin? Who's is told to do this, and look at what it says in verse one. It says, you who are spiritual. Here's what it doesn't say, you who are perfect. Because that's none of us. 
It doesn't even say you who are mature. Because oftentimes what we can get caught up to is when we see someone who is living in rebellion and living in unconfessed sin is we can say, well, well, I don't know enough yet. Like, I haven't been a believer long enough, and I don't know if I, you know, well, I haven't been to, I haven't been to seminary, so it's not my responsibility. Like, Johnny, this is something you need to do, or someone on the pastor needs, someone one of the pastors need to do, or one of the elders need to do, but not me. No, 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 it doesn't say mature. It doesn't say perfect. It says spiritual, and here's what spiritual means. You're walking with the Lord. You're walking with the Lord. You're not perfect. When you sin, you're confessing it. But you want to walk in step with the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is being demonstrated in your life. Galatians 5, and 23. It's not that you're perfect. It's not that you have this seminary type of mentality in your mind. What it means is, is you are sensitive to want to obey and do what God's Word says. And when you don't, you are quick to confess and repent it. You're spiritual. That's who's told to do this. Here's the next question. When should we do this? Like, you're like, at what point do I need to care enough for somebody that I'm, that I'm going to go to them and, and caution them in the way that they're living? When do I do that? Like, do they need to be doing that for, like, six months, a year? Like, do they need to be completely in the ditch before I care? Like, when should we do this? And notice what it says. If anyone is caught, in other words, what that mean, that word caught means detected or overtaken in unconfessed sin. So the reality is it's going to happen. It's going to happen in a community of people. You're going to have people who are tripped up, deceived, confused, overtaken, justifying it, whatever it is. It's if anyone's caught. That's when we do it. But here's the key. How should we do it? Because you can get the who should do it and when you should do it, but if you miss the how to do it, you're missing really the spirit by which you can restore someone. See, how does it say we should do it? It says you need to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. That's an amazing and and significant phrase because it literally means this, to put in order to restore something to its former state, that something has gotten off, and so we want to bring it back to a place to where it can function properly. It's also used, it was used in this day, the idea of mending your fishing nets, that when your fishing nets would get holes in them, therefore it could not do what they were designed to do, so you took careful or you took care in mending a net. You can't do that super quickly. It's very tedious work. So I'm not a fisherman, but you know what the same idea is? You ever been behind your entertainment center and something's not working and you got to go back there and it looks like actually a massive bowl of spaghetti? Ever been there? Like, oh my goodness, all the cords are tied all in together. They're all twisted. And you're like, okay, I got to figure out, let me trace where this one HDMI cable goes into this machine. And you got to pull them all out. You can't do it quickly. That's the idea. It's taking careful time to do something. The Greeks use this word to refer to setting a bone that is broken back in place. If you've ever had a broken bone that needs to be set, It's painful, super painful. 
but at the same time, you know it needs to be done, and you're thankful when it's done. It's a momentary, it's momentary pain for something that has lasting consequences. That's the idea of restore someone in a spirit of gentleness. Listen, confronting sin always needs to come from a place of care and compassion, not from a place of retribution or revenge. See, some of us are like, all of a sudden, like someone that we find out that we're kind of sideways with, and all of a sudden, they've, they've gotten caught up into something. We're like, man, I've been waiting for this chance. I have been waiting to tell them how much they are doing that is wrong. I can't wait. But that's not what it says, right? No, no, no. I restore in a spirit of gentleness. I don't do it in such a way that it's about me. I do it in such a way to which it's about them. But we also need to understand that you cannot have restoration without confrontation. See, some of us misunderstand that. We're like, you know, we're so passive-aggressive. And the reality is, is if a bone is broken and it needs to be put in place, the reality is, is you have to go through the pain of setting it. And I thought to myself, why doesn't this happen more in the church? Because you know what, oftentimes, I'm just going to be real with you, I'm going to be transparent with you. Sometimes we as pastors and as elders are the last to know what's going on. And when we find out about it, it's like so far in a place. It's like you are 10 miles in the forest. It would have been great for us to know when you were five steps in the forest. But oftentimes, that's because we don't have enough people in the church that are truly committed to bearing one another's burdens and loving someone enough and caring for someone enough to say, I am willing to confront them with where they are going astray and doing it with a spirit of gentleness, with care and compassion. And that's for a few reasons. One of them could be because you know how much unconfessed sin you have in your life. Or that person that you know you need to confront knows how much unconfessed sin you have in your life. Or maybe it's because we just don't really care that much. Ephesians 4.2, Paul says it like this to the church at Ephesus. Same idea. He says, bear with one another in love. And he says, do it with all humility, do it with all gentleness, and do it with all patience. See, gentleness is not passivity. Gentleness is that word power under control. And we have verses that we can unpack in the New Testament that tell us how to do this. Some of you who know the word of God better than others are like, yep, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. I'll say, absolutely. You know what it looks like? He gives us, he gives, the Lord gives us the formula. Like if you know someone is, has offended you or there's some type of offense there or some type of sin, go with that person one-on-one and, and do it in such a way that is loving. And he talks about, hey, before you deal with the little speck that's in someone else's eye, deal with the log that's in your eye. I mean, that's all Sermon on the Mount stuff. And, and Jesus tells us one-on-one. And then if that person doesn't respond and love someone enough to bring someone else with you to confront them. And if that doesn't happen, then tell it to the church. And he gives us that formula. But the Bible 
bottom line is, is I think so often where we miss the boat when we're thinking about what it looks like to bear one another's burdens is we don't go to what does it look like to love someone enough to seek the restoration of them who have wandered away and gotten caught up in sin and to do it with a spirit of gentleness. And if you saw someone driving off of a cliff, and you knew that, man, you're going on a road that it still has work on, and it's about to, if you continue on that road, unbeknownst to you, you will put yourself in harm's way. What would you do? You would tell them not to go down that road. Why? Because you care enough about them to tell them that. And how many of us in this room know people that are our friends, that we're in relationship with, and we know where their life is headed because maybe we've even been there. And we need to be reminded of this morning is God's called us. He's given us a Christ-given responsibility to seek their restoration gently. This is what we're called to do. Here's the second thing, and it's found in the second part of verse 1. And I I love the Holy Spirit in the way that he, through Paul, talks about seeking the restorations of others in a spirit of gentleness, but he's very quick to remind us to be careful for ourselves, because look at what it says. It says, keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. See, here's the second thing we need to be committed to, to guard my own heart, to guard your own heart carefully. Carefully, here's the reality. I'm not gonna tell you anything new in this statement, but we need to be reminded of this reality. Here's the reality. We all have burdens, every one of us. Like, just look to the person next to you and say this. I have burdens. Just go ahead. For some of you, that was very hard to do. For those of you, it maybe wasn't so hard to do. For others of you, you were like, I already knew that. (laughs) We all have burdens. Let's bring ourselves back to that reality. Bring ourselves back because it says, keep watch on yourselves. Because you know know why Paul says that? Because he knows how self-righteous we can be. That when we're confronting someone else's sin, we can be so quick to say, well, man, I'm sure glad I ain't messed up as much as her, she, or her, or him. Right? Paul's very quick to say, wait a minute, when you're doing this, be careful that you're guarding your own heart carefully. What do I need to guard my heart from? Because when I have a tendency to allow self-righteousness to rise up in me, and we all can What it leads to is self-deception because look at what it says in verse three. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So here's what it's not saying when it says when he is nothing. It's not talking about us being self-loathing. It's not talking about saying, man, let me remind myself today that I'm just terrible. It's not the idea. But it's a reminder to, to bring myself to the reality that but by the grace of God, I am where that person may be. Man, I had a mentor of mine that reminded me of that early on in my ministry years, that when you're sitting down and you're counseling other people and you're walking through their stuff to guard yourself against this mentality that, man, that can never be me. 
Like, unfortunately, when I have to hear, oh, this person cheated on their spouse, I can, I can like, hear the Holy Spirit whispering in my head, yeah, you're not above that. It's bringing ourselves back to the reality. Wait a minute, let me guard myself against self-righteousness and self-deception into thinking that others need help with that stuff, but not me. See, self-deception causes you to think. Here's the danger of self-deception. It causes us to think that God's instruction for how we are to live and care for one another applies to everyone else but you. You know, I've had friends, and from friends, acquaintances, who are no longer pastoring churches today, who know the Word of God much more than me. And I've seen a consistent thing because I've asked them, I was like, man, when, when would you look to the time? And, and, and then they're, they're I mean... They've been restored, and, and some of them are doing other things, but I'm sharing this with you. I asked them, I said, when was the thing that you could point to that was like the point where you started to really slide? And every one of them said, when I began to think that what I was preaching and what I was teaching and what I was counseling applied to everyone else but me. It's when you're sitting in the seat and the word of God is open and you're listening to a message and you're like, whew, man, I sure hope she's here today. Where's she at? Like, let me look around and worship so that nobody can understand. And, but I'm looking the whole time. Oh, she's not, he's not here today. I sure hope he's at the, he was at the 9 a.m. Or I sure hope that he or she is at the 11 a.m. Because they need to hear this. Where are we going? Self-deception. Rather than saying, Lord, what do I need to hear? What do I need to change? What do I need to confess? Where do I need to repent? See, that's why Paul says in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. It's guarding ourselves against what I like to call the spiritual armchair athlete. What do I mean by that? Man, you are quick to tell everybody what they need to do, how they need to do it, where they need to do it better, what they need to do next time, all of that. Man, you got it all down. You're just sitting in your spiritual armchair eating chips, telling everybody else how to do something. Man, when I was an athlete playing in, playing in different leagues and schools and stuff like that, you know what I used to hate? I used to hate the guy that would love to tell me what I did wrong, who I knew was the least athletic person in the room. Like, dude, you just need to worry about getting on the treadmill, bro, tomorrow. Like, don't tell me what I need to do. <laughs> that was a little bit of the fleshly side of Johnny coming out. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I love sometimes having conversations with people in the church that want to say, hey, man, I can't wait to meet with you and tell you what the church needs to be doing in this next ministry project. I'm like, man, I can't wait to hear it. And I'm sitting down with them. But never once does it come up, and here's how I want to help. Or here's what I think needs to be done better. Or here's what I think needs to change. Or here's what I think needs to be addressed. Awesome. When can I have your help? No, 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 man. I'm a spiritual armchair athlete. Self-deception. Here's another thing we need to guard ourselves against. Not just self-deception, but self-sufficiency. 
self-sufficiency. Here's the danger of this. Because we so often get caught up, and it, it's not just guys. It can be ladies as well. We get caught up in this self-sufficient mentality that we think that self-sufficiency is a mark of bravery and strength. And I'm preaching to the choir right now, okay, unless you noticed. Rather than a sign of pride. Because self-sufficiency keeps you and it keeps me from being vulnerable. Because when Paul says, keep watching yourselves lest you too be tempted, in verse 3, for if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. He's not just talking about me judging someone else because they're at a place that I don't think I could be. It's also this self-sufficient mentality that says, okay, I'm going to help everyone else carry their heavy load a long ways that they can't carry on their own, but I don't think that I need any help. I don't know, man, I'm good. I'll help, your care, I'll help carry your load. I want you to be transparent and tell me, how, tell me how I can help you, but I'm not about to open up and tell you how you can help me. Do you see the deception in that? That falls into God's word and what God's word says applies to everyone else but me. And it's a failure to understand when I am getting caught up in my self-sufficiency and in that mentality is that I don't need any, any, anybody's help even though I believe that everybody else does. And I'm setting myself up for failure. And you know why we struggle with this? You don't want to know why I struggle with this? Is because we so often want to equate vulnerability as weakness. See, I'm just going to be real with you. I'm not too crazy about giving you bullets that you can load in your gun and shoot me with later. Not too excited about that. And neither are you. But there's something that happens inside of us when we come to the place and confess our pride and realize that this heavy burden that God has allowed to come into my life to bring me to the end of myself, he's done that so that I can open myself up and apply this scripture in such a way that I can experience what the body of Christ was designed to do. See, some of us need to stop thinking that we're strong enough to carry everybody else's burdens and strong enough to carry our own as well passage of scripture that drove this home to me, and I know many of us, is when we walk through that Psalm 23 series, Unafraid, at the beginning of the year, right? I think of that verse two, right? He makes me lie down. Doesn't ask me, doesn't invite me, doesn't encourage me, he makes me. I remember lying on this stage, flat on my back, to give that illustration, and there has been many days since that time that I are like, why did I do that? Because the Lord taught me in that time more than really any other time in my life what it looked like to lie down, to embrace that, to open up, to be vulnerable, to admit that I'm not strong, to embrace the things that I teach everyone else in a greater way. And you know what I came to realize? That so often the green pastures and the still waters that are spoken of in verse 2 are realized when you just allow other people to help you carry your burden. 
Because there will come a point, if you do not, that you will not do anyone else any good either. Because for at some point, in some frame of time, I will get to the point that because I'm not allowing anyone else to help carry that heavy burden and rid myself of that pride and confess it and open up, that I will not be able to have the strength to carry anyone else's either. And I wonder if the reason why so many churches are not practicing this well is because there is a culture that we are not about to open up to anyone because we're afraid that we're going to be judged rather than helped. We've got to guard our own hearts carefully. Here's the third thing, and we'll be done, and it's found in verses 4 and 5. Let's read these verses again because it's been a while. Look at what it says. But let each one test. That word test means to measure. His own work. You ought to circle if you have your Bible out and a pen, own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each one will have to bear his own load. Here's the third thing I need to be committed to if I'm going to bear one another's burdens. I need to measure God's work in me soberly. Soberly. See, measuring myself is not comparing myself with someone else. That's not measuring myself. Well, man, I'm looking out at this. You're like, I'm looking out at this crowd, and I know enough people. I'm looking at the, the life group that I'm in and, and that I have community in, and I'm like, well, I'm, I, I'm not as bad off as he or she is. No, that's not what it means. Why? Because you're measuring yourself by someone else. And I can always find someone who's worse off than me. And here's the thing. Some of us are like, well, I'm looking, I'm looking to this person. I'm like, man, that person is so much further down the road and seems to have their act completely together. And let me tell you, nobody does. But, but we think, man, that person's so much further down the road than me. And we get discouraged because we're not that far in our Christian walk. Why? Because we're not supposed to measure ourselves by someone else who's further down the road than us or who may, who, be, who may be worse off than us. How do we measure ourselves? We measure ourselves. We test our own work according to a standard. And you know what that standard is, right? It's this. This is the standard. Not you, not me, not your husband, not your wife, not your small group leader. This. This is the standard. It's bringing my own life on a daily basis before the pages of God's word and saying, Lord, where can I be encouraged and where can I be challenged? Where do I need to confess and where do I need to rejoice? See, it's asking ourselves as we open up God's word, man, let me take some time to evaluate and where have I been more loving and more patient have I been more loving and more patient than I even was six months ago or months ago in this relationship that was really difficult? And if I have been, then man, let me rejoice. Look at what it says in this passage. It says, then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. It's a, it's a good type of boasting. It's like, Lord, I'm thankful that this is the work that you're doing in me. 
It's asking, Lord, how am I growing in a deeper way in my love for you and, and your word and spending time with you? Man, it was so hard for me to develop that consistency, but now I don't even want to miss it. Like, I feel like I'm missing something when I miss a day in your word and praying to you. Man, what is that? That's God growing something in you, and you need to rejoice in that. Why? Because you're measuring your own work according to the standard of God's word, not someone else. You know what I've found is when, when I'm using this as the standard, it keeps me from living my life in a spirit of competition. It motivates me to live it in a spirit of confession. It motivates me to live my life in a humble way rather than an arrogant way. Because this is my standard. See, I'm measuring God's work in me sober. Lee. But look at verse 5. Because if you're tracking with me, you're like, man, you just read verse 5, which says, for each one will have to bear his own load. And you're like, wait a minute, but verse 2 says we're supposed to bear one another's burdens. So is Paul contradicting himself here? And if you're asking that, I'm glad you're asking that because it's not a contradiction. Let me explain because the word translated burdens in verse 2, as we've talked about, means a heavy load, something that we have to carry for a long distance, getting to the reality that we can't carry it on our own. But the word load that's found in verse 5 is a word that was used back in the day to refer to a soldier's knapsack or backpack, something smaller. It was something that you could carry. What's the significance of that? Here's the significance. This load that I'm called to carry that no one else can carry and the load that you're called to carry that no one else is called to carry, it's that responsibility, it's that acknowledgement, it's that reality, if you want to say it that way, that one day I'm going to stand before God and give an account for how I've used what he's given me. My relationships have I lived them in this way? The resources God's given me, the gifts that God's given me, have I stewarded those things in such a way to show that I've been changed by the gospel, by the love of Jesus Christ? And here's the reality. I don't know what that looks like, but 1 Corinthians 3, verses 11 through 13 talks about this time where I'm gonna, where some way, I don't know what it looks like, but our, our, our things are gonna be, our, our works are gonna be evaluated and they're gonna be, gold, they're gonna be gold, silver, and precious stone. They're gonna last because they were motivated by the right reasons or they're gonna be wood, wood, hay, and stubble and they're gonna be burn up because they're out of the wrong motivations. It's not a matter of my salvation being called into question, but how I've used what God has given me. That's a responsibility that I have. That's a responsibility that you have. That's a load that we each carry because here's, here's what that means. When I stand before God one day in whatever way that looks like, not to, get in a hev- not to get into heaven, but to be evaluated for what I've done, it's not going to be Lori and I up there together, my wife, hand in hand. It's not going to be, hey, would the prayer family come forward now? No, it's me. It's you. See, I can't carry that for you, and you can't carry that for me. But if we're bearing one another's burdens the way that we're called to, as we've seen in this passage of Scripture, then we're not going to be scared of that day. We're going to be awaiting that day with expectation. So where are you today? Where has the Lord shown you? Man, you've been 
confronting that person the wrong way. You've not been doing it with gentleness. You've been doing it with judgment. Whereas the Lord convicted you of, man, you've been living your life out of self-deception and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, thinking that you're above what everybody else needs. No, 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 confess that. Where have you been measuring yourself and comparing yourself to someone rather than saying, Lord, it's you and me. I stand before you. I give an account to you. Lord, it's, your standard is your word. I don't know what it is, but I promise you the Lord is showing you right now what it is. So can we just take a moment and let's just talk to the Lord. Let's confess what needs to be confessed. Let's be encouraged where, where God's wanting to encourage us. Let's be challenged where God wants to challenge us. Let's rejoice. And the growth that you've been able to see in your life from where you were months ago or years ago. But let's do that right now and then I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing.